Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 14. It's still D-Day in the 21st of May 1982, and the British by now have landed over 3,000 troops at the Bay of San Carlos. They need to shift thousands of tons of material from ship to shore, something that was going to be sorely tested by the Argentinian Air Force. On the morning of the 21st of May, the British had made good use of the mist to land their troops virtually unopposed, as you heard last episode. The only major hitch for the British so far was the retreating Argentinian platoons based at San Carlos and Fanning Head, which shot down two gazelle gunships, killing three of the crew. It was a fine day once the mist cleared. Perfect weather for the Fuerza Aérea, or the Argentine Air Force. There was a mistaken arrogance amongst some in the British force that the pilots were second grade compared to the RAF. Perhaps they should have taken better notice of their Fuerza training. These pilots had been taken under the wing, so to speak, of both the Israeli and the French air forces. At first glance, on paper, the Argentinians did appear to have the upper hand. They had a vast superiority in the numbers of aircraft and bases. But the nearest base, Rio Gallegos, was 400 miles away. That was an hour of flight time, given the takeoffs, landings and low-level flying that was conducted in the final phases to avoid missiles. The flight training had been conducted over land, and the Argentinians discovered very quickly how exposed they were over the open sea, where radar picked them up 80 or 150 miles away. None of their commanders and pilots had real combat experience, unlike the British. The real threat to the British task force lay with three squadrons equipped with 68 American-built A-4P Skyhawk fighter bombers. One escadron of the 4th Brigade, four and five squadrons of the 5th Brigade were fearsome. The Royal Navy Sea Harriers in the RAF version called the GR3 were its opponents. Both the Skyhawk and Harriers were designed to meet the need for attack planes that would not require long fixed runways. In the Harriers' case, no runway at all, and they are almost the same weight and size. However, the Harrier would both outgun and outfly a Skyhawk, which were well over 20 years old by then. They were regarded as obsolete by the Americans, having been sold to the Argentinians in 1966. The Skyhawks had been fitted with a more modern weapons aiming sight, but the Harriers had heads-up displays giving them the advantage in a dogfight. At low level, the Skyhawk was over 100 miles per hour slower than the Harriers. But their weapons were more even. Both the Skyhawk and Harrier carried an early version of the American Sidewinder air-to-air missile, which can only be fired from behind an enemy aircraft, as it seeks the heat from the jet engine. Little did the Argentinians know that the British had dipped into their NATO war stocks and hurriedly equipped the Harriers with the latest generation American-made AIM-9L or AIM-9L missiles, which had a guidance system allowing for them to be fired at an aircraft from any angle. The British, however, were ignoring NATO rules, which stipulated that these missiles could only be used in a crisis in Europe. Britain told the United States about this, and Washington secretly sold them 100 replacement sidewinders on the spot. The Harrier had another dogfight ace up its sleeve. It could come to a virtual shuddering halt in mid-air, something called VIFing, which is a word from an acronym, Vectoring in Forward Flight. Very early in the Falklands War, pilots flying the Harrier realized that when VIFing was deployed, their plane would not only slow down to a crawl, it would also climb simultaneously. In a high-speed dogfight, if the British pilot viffed and the Skyhawk or Mirage would thunder past them and slightly below, whereupon the Harrier would re-engage but now at the enemy's six o'clock position. 
The Argentinians also possessed 44 mirages of various types. About half were the Israeli re-engineered dagger. They were extremely fast, hitting Mach 2.2, but only at high altitude. At lower altitudes, they were only slightly faster than the Harriers and suffered from fuel deficiency and armament weaknesses. The British, however, had developed a dangerous misconception that their opponents were not going to put up too much of a fight. Soon after they landed on San Carlos, these illusions were laid to rest spectacularly. So on the morning of the 21st, two Harriers took off from the Hermes, aiming at Mount Kent, where the Argentinians had stationed their important Puma, Chinooks and Huey helicopters. These were being used to ferry supplies around the island during the day, but at night they were parked near Mount Kent, 12 miles from Stanley. During the day, they'd be parked at the port to take advantage of the powerful anti-aircraft system the Argentinians had set up there. The Harriers quickly located the helicopter site near Mount Kent. Fourteen of the 601st Combat Aviation Battalion were based there and still on the ground when the Harriers swooped in at dawn, dropping cluster bombs. These caused very little damage, but they then turned and swooped in once more, opening up with their 30mm cannons and hit a Puma, a Chinook and a Huey. First Lieutenant Ignacio Goriti, who was commanding B Company 12th Regiment, was guarding the site. We heard the Harriers coming. Our pilots ran to the helicopters and tried to start them between attacks, but they were cold. That was except for one of the Hueys, which was supposed to be shuttling Lieutenant Goriti to a local farm where he was going to pinch a tractor battery for his radios. They had just taken off when the Harriers arrived and the Huey pilot hurriedly headed to a spot for a landing. The noise was dreadful and Goriti said after the war he lived near an incline and... The trucks had to change gear going up the hill. I used to wake up thinking those Harriers were on me again. It wasn't all one way. An Argentinian soldier of 601st Commando Company based at Port Howard shot down a Harrier using a blowpipe missile. The pilot ejected, but was badly hurt. He was picked up by the Argentinians and ended up on the mainland in hospital. The British pilot survived and was apparently well treated. The mantle of combat for the Argentinians, which had been held by the Navy, now rapidly shifted to the Air Force. The next week was going to see frenetic action, although the Argentinians would pay dearly in the loss of both aircraft and pilots. The British were also going to pay as their ships were damaged and sunk, as you're going to hear. The first Argentinian flights were the locally based Bucara aircraft. Six were ordered to take off from Goose Green Airfield, but only one managed to make it into the sky before HMS Ardent started her shelling there. The Bucara pilot, Jorge Benitez, was supposed to conduct a patrol, but that changed rapidly when he realized a full-scale invasion was taking place at San Carlos. Before he could attack, a wide-awake member of the SAS team, which had conducted a diversionary assault on Goose Green, spotted him and hit the Pucaro with a Stinger missile. Benitez managed to eject, survived the landing, and then spent the rest of the day walking the 10 miles back to Goose Green. But it was the action of another solo pilot called Lieutenant Guillermo Cripa that was more important. When news broke of the British landings, he was at Stanley and took off in his Aeromachi, and headed to San Carlos. He arrived there from the east, the sun behind him, which was fortunate because of the array of weapons lined up facing him. He spotted a Lynx helicopter, and he was about to shoot it down when he saw the frigate Argonaut, the most northerly of the British gun line of warships. It was stationed in Falkland Sound for the day, providing air defense for the amphibious landings, and Cripper dived straight for it. He fired his cannon and rockets, hitting the upper works of the ship, but didn't cause much damage, although he injured two sailors. He then banked away, flying along the bay and counting the ships arraigned in a line. Upon returning to Stanley, he personally reported to Commander Menendez 
and was congratulated for his courage. Later, he was awarded the Cruz la Nación Argentina al Heroico Valore en Combat. He was the only pilot to win this coveted award the entire war. Two more Bacaras took off from Goose Green once the Ardent's shelling had died down, but they had the bad luck to run straight into two sea harriers. They tried hugging the ground and twisting through the hills of the Falklands, but couldn't escape the harriers. Major Carlos Tomba was shot down by cannon fire. He ejected and survived. The second got away. The efforts so far of the Argentinian Air Force had done little damage to the landing force, but two Pacaras were already lost. Back on the mainland, the majority of Argentinian planes were being held back after their terrible lesson on May the 1st. The Canberras were too vulnerable to fly during daylight hours. Eighth Fighter Group only had eight Mirages left, and they had to focus on defending the mainland from an expected British attack. The Fuerza Aria had 62 available aircraft, 39 Skyhawks of the 4th and 5th Fighter Groups, and 23 Daggers, the Israeli souped-up version of the Mirage of 6th Fighter Group. They were bolstered by eight more Skyhawks that arrived at Rio Grande after they had been sent to help from the aircraft carrier Vienticinso de Mayo. The Super Etendard unit at Rio Grande still had three Exocet missiles remaining but could only be used in the open sea. So if you stand back and think about this, the Argentinians had a big problem. They could only carry out low-level bombing attacks over the sea at maximum range from their own bases without fighter escort and facing the terrifying prospect of high-skilled Harrier pilots. Add to this the massive fire the British could bring to bear their missiles and anti-aircraft systems on board the various vessels, and you get an idea just how challenging this was going to be for an air force that the British thought was not up to scratch. So the Argentinian pilots scrambled their jets early on the morning of 21st of May and began their attacks at 10.30am, continuing for five hours until 330 there were three distinct waves, each containing between 14 and 17 aircraft. The first wave saw eight daggers from 6th Fighter Group based at San Julian and Rio Grande and six Skyhawks of 5th Fighter Group from Rio Gallegos. First Lieutenant Filippini led five Skyhawks as they banked and aimed at the frigate HMS Argonaut in the northern entrance to Falkland Sound just under Fanning Head. Argonaut's captain ordered full speed and the ship's anti-aircraft fire created what Filippini later called hell as he saw red light beams of the tracer rounds which created a curtain in front of his plane. He dove to a few feet above the sea then pulled up as he let his bombs go, trying to get those to loop over Fanning Head, which was around 200 meters high. He was so low that one of his auxiliary fuel tanks hit the Argonaut's mast and on the way out of the bay saw the smoke from the ship and also noticed that the ship's superstructure had changed from grey to reddish-brown as it glowed. All five of his planes made it back to base. The Argonaut had been hit on the flight deck, the magazines were in danger of exploding, and more planes were reported to be on their way. HMS Fearless was the command ship, and at the entrance of San Carlos Water, where Commodore Michael Clapp grabbed a microphone and shouted, Keep firing! Keep firing! To his left was that great white whale, the liner Canberra, a clear and easy target. Fearless was alongside in front of both with the frigates HMS Yarmouth and Plymouth, while the cruiser Antrim was further out, steaming in figures of eight like a mother tiger guarding her cubs, said Crabbe. To their right, out in the sound and forming the first part of the gun line, were five frigates, Ardent, Broadsword, Brilliant, Argonaut, and the furthest away, Alacrity. But the Argonaut was now in big trouble. Ten bombs had fallen in the sea around her, 
the massive splashes momentarily blinding the gun crews. Two had hit the ship. One went into the boiler room just above the waterline, struck the bulkhead, and the boiler exploded, filling the space with superheated steam. The ship was at full speed, but now it stopped. Astonishingly, all ten sailors in the boiler room survived alive. The second bomb hit forward below the waterline, passed through the fuel tank, and then into the Seacat magazine, causing three of these missiles to explode, but miraculously the bomb itself did not. But two magazine handlers were killed instantly. Then the magazine filled with escaping oil from the fuel tank, and the door of the Seacat hoist had been blown off its hinges. Dense white smoke began to fill the ship, and she drifted towards the shore, staring gone, telegraphed dead. Captain Lehman sent a sailor forward to drop an anchor from the forecastle and took damage reports. It was a confusing time. A major fire had broken out in the mess deck above the magazine. Bedding and aluminium lockers had ignited. The fire eventually was brought under control by a courageous act. The stoker by the name of Hathaway had entered the space with a breathing apparatus. HMS Yarmouth Wasp helicopter arrived to shuttle the wounded. Captain Lehman then managed to get the ship's auxiliary generators started and rigged an emergency lead to the forward Seacat missile. They were back in business, or at least sort of. Lehman signaled the fearless. We can float and fight, but not steam. And as light began to fade, Achimus Plymouth moved out of San Carlos Bay to protect the ship from more air attacks. Eventually, towing the Argonaut to the relative safety of San Carlos water, but still nursing two unexploded bombs. The Argentinians were not finished. In the final burst of action that began at around 2.30pm and lasting until 3.15, both sides were going to suffer greatly. Eleven daggers and six naval skyhawks had taken off. All but one arrived overhead the task force, where they had broken up into tactical groups of two or three aircraft. A harrier shot down one of the daggers, but the others had no idea, thinking their colleague First Lieutenant Negro Luna, as he was called, had flown into a hill. As they approached Grantham Sound, they spotted HMS Ardent, and the squadron leader, Captain Robles, said later he'd said to himself, This will be for Luna. They had struck her twice, but her suffering was not over. Six other Skyhawks arrived in two formations of three each. They came in from the south, low over the sound. In the fading light, the last attack of the day fell on HMS Ardent. The 3,250-ton Type 21 frigate which had been carrying out gunfire support in the southernmost sector of the naval screen. Two 1,000-pound bombs hit her aft, severing all her vital systems and tearing her wide open. The next stick of bombs hit her on the port side and set the ship on fire, killing 24 men and wounding 30. In an act of defiance, and something veterans of warfare can attest to, the Nafi canteen manager somehow had got hold of a GP machine gun and opened up continuously on the Skyhawks, that had swooped on his ship. Two hundred men were then evacuated from the Ardent, where they were waiting patiently in their once-only survival suits. As the terminally damaged Ardent began to burn along its entire length, Commander Alan West wept along with some of his men. It was a shocking wake-up call that this war in the Falklands was bloody and set to become even more so. The Canberra was now a medical support vessel, although some provisions were still on board. The ship's crew, which only a few hours before had been whooping and hollering when the invasion began, were shocked into silence. 4,000 British troops were now ashore, but at great cost to the Navy. The daggers had hit various ships with cannon fire. A bomb also hit the Antrim, but failed to explode. 
One dagger was shot down, believed to be by a seawolf fired from HMS Broadsword. Its pilot was killed. One frigate had been sunk. Four others had been damaged in the repeated air attacks by the Argentinians. They had managed to crack open British defence. Brigadier Thompson shuddered to think what would have happened had these fighters and bombers aimed at the landing craft. The Argentinians, by now, had lost seven aircraft out of the 16 that attacked the operational area. Two others were downed on the way home, both by Harriers, but one of these had a bizarre end. The story told by its pilot later is one of those head-shaking moments in the war. Lieutenant Jose Arias Skyhawk had been badly damaged by a Sea Harrier and appeared to be flyable. He managed to make it to Stanley Airport with his landing gear flaps and hook all hold, as well as a fuselage riddled with 30mm cannon holes. Major Inarello, who was on the ground, radioed Lieutenant Aria and warned him that the plane was too badly damaged to land and that he should fly over the sea and eject there where the crashing plane would cause the least damage. At least this is what they hoped. We saw him go out, tumbling around in the air like a little puppet until his parachute opened, said Inarello. To our surprise, the plane seemed to come alive and ready to play a nasty joke on us. For the first seconds, the plane appeared to dive straight for the airman, dangling from his chute. Then it turned towards Port Stanley. Then it turned away towards the airfield, as if someone was playing with the controls. Major Ian Narello ordered his gunners to open up on the plane, but despite thousands of rounds flying at it, all missed. Finally, it landed by itself on the beach, and was smashed against the rocks with all the dignity of an A-4 Skyhawk, said Ian Narello. The pilot was rescued. Little did anyone know at this point, but Lieutenant Luna was not dead. He ejected after the Sea Harrier shot him down, but his chute opened literally as he hit the ground. He broke a bone in his shoulder and dislocated his arm and his knee. His story is another of those incredible sagas. Somehow he managed to bind his knee and pull the inflatable dinghy that landed with him to his side and rolled inside with the parachute as bedding. He drank a litre of water and downed seven painkillers one after the other. He was in agony. During that terrible night, half awake, I heard a noise of an engine, so I fired a flare, he said afterwards. No one came, so he fell asleep, waking at nine the next morning. He peered out from his dinghy and saw he was in a valley surrounded by mountains, about twenty kilometres west of Port Howard. He had to get out or he was going to die. He created a splint from broken bits of his plane and dragged his dinghy behind him for a couple of hours, knowing that it was protection against the elements. Eventually, he had to leave it behind, and just after 3 p.m. on the 22nd of May, he came across some kelpers who saw him, but ignored him. He hobbled towards the farmhouse, and the kelpers he saw there looked like they were going to kill him. They came to me in a Land Rover when I was about 400 meters from the farmhouse, he said. At first, they refused to help him, but when he handed over his knife, his gloves, and a torch, they relaxed and carried him into the house of a man who had a radio. This man turned out to be a true English gentleman, said Luna later. The man, who remains anonymous, helped him to a bed and then treated Luna for two more days until an Argentinian unit arrived to pick him up. Luna never returned to say thank you, but never forgot what he called the English gentleman. And thus ended the May 21st attacks. Ten Argentine aircraft had been shot down, all by sea harriers except one, and this was more than 25% of the total number that had attacked the British fleet. That's an extraordinary high loss rate. Five daggers and five skyhawks were gone. 
32 British sailors were dead and more than 30 others injured. The Ardent was sinking. Antrim and Argonaut were out of action with unexploded bombs in them and Brilliant and Broadsword had been damaged. The British, despite the damage and the loss, realised that their enemy had made a major mistake. Instead of targeting the landing craft and troops, they'd gone for the ships. That meant the landings had been successful, despite the British losses. The second mistake they'd made was that they'd flown too low so that most of the bombs that dropped did not explode. Had they done so, things would have been far worse for the British. There was more action in store for both sides over the next few days, as you're going to hear in the next episode. Right now, we must halt and dig in. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.